This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. As a child growing up in Burnaby, British Columbia, Prem Gill knew she wanted to work in TV, but she never imagined she would be helping to shape the mass media industry in British Columbia and across the country. As CEO of Creative BC, Prem leads the organization responsible for maintaining and growing BC's diverse creative sector, from films and TV to magazine and book publishing. It's a huge mandate, but one that Prem and her team have successfully continued to grow and nurture, even through a worldwide health crisis. We recently had a chance to speak with Prem about her career, navigating the constantly changing technology landscape, and how mentorship has been integral to her career. Here's our conversation with Prem Gill. I think like on a personal level, I find your your trajectory is something that I can kind of relate to, you know, immigrant parents, mm-hmm. you know, you, you guys are the first generation. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, growing up in Burnaby, being a child of immigrants, like what were you into as a kid? Yeah, you know, I mean, when you're growing up, you don't really think that your story or what you're going through is anything special or different. I mean, actually, you do feel different, but, um, you know, you don't think it's anything sort of extraordinary, but there's a lot that obviously shapes you based on your family experiences and where and how you grew up. And certainly, um, you know, I think one thing that was, uh, you know, instilled in me by my parents and, you know, other adults around me at the time was the working hard. And, you know, that came with a lot of complications in some sense in growing up in the 70s and 80s as people of color. Um, You know, me and my siblings, we were all born here. Uh, My parents are those first generation um, immigrants to come to Canada, you know, coming here for a generation that didn't even exist yet you know, in the hopes that we'd have more opportunities growing up in, in Canada than they would have, or if they'd stayed in India, or actually they came via the UK. So they made a lot of decisions long before, you know, any of us were even in existence. Uh, but I think what it set us up for is, you know, at that time, it was not great to not be a Um, you know, non-white Canadian, even if you didn't really fully understand what it meant as a kid, because, you know, all the norms in media and pop culture were not people that looked like us or even shared stories like ours. So you're always sort of, you know, I think trying to bend or become something that you weren't. Um, or trying to fit in or hide parts of yourself and all of those types of things. But I think for me, at kind of an early age, I didn't, even though I didn't have the language or could articulate it, I, I knew that I wanted to be something that was part of, you know, mass media or mass culture. But part of it was because I wasn't represented. And I think as I got older and certainly going into high school and then university, those, that was sort of what always drove me into what and how I want to participate in my career choices, even if I didn't even call it a career or jobs that I wanted or what I wanted to achieve, was um, seeing opportunities for myself and other people like me um, in within you know the Canadian media landscape. I'm abbreviating a lot of things here, but I think you probably get the 
the general gist of what I'm trying to say here is that you just really, I really encourage like young people in my life to really, you know, be who they are and really, um, you know, don't try to conform to things if you're, if that's not you or make yourself fit into something just because you think it's the right thing to do when in fact that's exactly how I grew up at that time. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, so it does, even though sometimes it feels like you haven't made a lot of, I guess what we would call progress, there is a lot of, um, there is a lot that has changed and shifted in terms of discourse. And so you, you 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 say that you always had this sensation that you wanted to to work in in in, in mass media, but that didn't really come into you know when did that really come into into a vision of like what that might look like? You'd mentioned you mentioned in previous interviews talking about mm-hmm. looking through the SFU catalog and seeing this communication. Yeah, well, you've really looked at other things I've talked about. <laughs> I had to prepare. I had to know what I was dealing with here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's true. I was in grade 11 or 12 and uh, I went to a high school that was very close to SFU. So we'd get invited up to do tours of the school or even like, I don't know, tournaments or whatever else, just because of our proximity to the university. And I remember in grade 11, you know, the counselors, career counselors or whomever showing us talking about post-secondary opportunities. And I just remember I'd never heard anybody talk about communications or mass communications. And I didn't know what it was. But reading through the catalog of this, like, study of media, and it wasn't journalism, right? But, you know, at that time, there were no journalism schools, traditional journalism schools, either at SFU or UBC. And maybe that's what it was that intrigued me, because it was about um, understanding how the media is created and formed and, um, you know, the value of it, how much meaning it has in our lives when we don't even know. And I think it really sort of, for the first time when I saw that, I was like, wow, I don't want to, you know, do a business degree or whatever, you know, how, again, immigrant parents, right? Accounting, engineering, all these kinds of things. Not that I excelled in any means in any of those areas, but they just weren't even of interest to me. So there was something that tweaked for me then. And then I really think when I, you know, went to SFU and started taking those courses and meeting other people and having those, you know, conversations and dialogue about, you know, studying Marshall McLuhan and Whitehall Rabchinsky, I'm saying that name completely wrong, but all of these, um, you know, people who spent a long time reading and writing about the role of media in our lives. Um, it just, as I was going through that, I think it started to become more important to me that, you know, I wanted to work in communications. And again, so, you know, I'm dating myself, but when I graduated from university, email was just starting. And you could email each other, maybe, and you didn't even really do that. And you checked your email once a day. You know, social media was like not even anything in anybody's horizon, nor was YouTube, right? Like Mm -hmm. that was all to come many years later. So, you know, I think you, I would probably be thinking of it very differently now, or you just have more access to stuff now, or, Mm -hmm. and you're able to create more on your own and, you know, back in you know back in the day it was um you know you'd really have to you know go to the library and source things out and you know bookstores magazines whatever else like there was really no 
there wasn't really HBO. There wasn't, you know, all of these other places where conversations are happening now in different mm-hmm. ways. So, so I'm curious. So you, you go to SFU, you graduate with this communications degree. What was your dream job at that point in your life? What did you want to do? Well, you know, I thought I'd um, work at a TV station or something, right? I don't know if I spent too much time thinking about it, to be honest. It was the 90s. I'm Gen X. It was the economy was not great. You know, jobs were really difficult to find. And I actually had a part-time job at the public library all through university and high school. And I ended up taking a full-time job because there just weren't other opportunities coming along. So, you know, I, I took a job as a, as a clerk at uh, public library branch. And then I just started applying for other jobs. And I got an opportunity to be the receptionist at a public relations firm. And I quit my library job and took that because I was like, great, this is like in the area, in the zone, right? (laughs) You get to, um, and you know, one of my jobs was like, uh, I had to read community newspapers from across the province and do clippings. This is, again, this is like so oldie time sounding now, but I'd actually have to go through all the community newspapers that would arrive once a week. And do clippings, and if they were in reference to this client, you you know, clip out the articles, glue them onto a piece of paper, photocopy them, then fax them to the client. (laughs) So I love it. I love it. I still remember the fax machines and the photocopiers. I I don't even know where the fax machine in my office is or what number for it is. So, so I'm curious though because that job, yes, even though like looking at it now, like at the time it might have been like it's just in the vicinity of what I want to do, but it really does provide kind of an insight of what's happening in an industry that you're interested in across the entire province. So it was actually like not a bad starting position. Yeah, it was about consuming, you know, reading, consuming mm-hmm. information, media, news, pop culture. Like, I think maybe I think maybe that's what it was. Like, forever, I've always had an interest in that. Mm-hmm. Like, reading whatever newspapers or now, you know, podcasts are part of it. And mm-hmm. just continually, you know, developing, I don't know if, you, if I carry the knowledge sometimes, but at least like having an interest in learning about things and, and being engaged Mm-hmm. being engaged in sort of the discourse of things around, you know, me and what was happening. But at the same time that I had that job, I started volunteering at a South Asian radio station um, called Radio Rim Jim, where I, um, anyways, eventually did some, you know, little radio shows and things there. But that was really the starting point of actually having some kind of quote unquote, you know, job in the media <laughs> And that and that started, like you say, as a volunteer position. So mm-hmm. it went from something of an interest to something that really started to shape what your career might look like. Yeah. And I really think because that's what, you know, I wasn't, you know, the PR job was fine, but I knew it wasn't going to last forever. And it wasn't really the direction, whatever. I was like in such a junior role, you're just trying to sort of do all kinds of things. So for me, I just started to find places maybe where I could start to learn more and, and, you know, understand what the opportunities are. And I think that was part of it is until you're in a place or somewhere or start to have conversations with people, you don't really know what the opportunities are or what they might look like or what those jobs might look like. And that's why I always, you know, often say to people, you know, I don't think I have had a linear path because I certainly didn't 
set out to be the CEO of a you know nonprofit called Creative BC that has the responsibilities that it does, I you know was always just continually interested in trying to be part of building new things, a place where you know ideas could grow and develop and many I worked at, you know, startups in the early days of startups, like just all kinds of different things. Mm -hmm. And at the time, sometimes you're like, yeah, sometimes it does feel like it's a job and, you know, you have your bills to pay. And at some point, like, I guess I am now, you get to a place where you're like, okay, I, I think I understand what there's something from every one of those experiences that helps me in my job today. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, because um, one of the things I found really interesting was you were part of the team that uh, launched City TV in Vancouver, and uh, you've often been kind of like at the forefront of things as they're developing. But specifically, I wanted to ask about that, because I mean, it's that seems like such a monumental task to launch an entire channel. Well, and it certainly wasn't me launching a channel and deciding we should have a channel. Mm-hmm. Not at all, right? It was part of a, a company called mm-hmm. Cham Television. And before, you know, it's, it's a process in Canada where you have to go through licensing through the CRTC and a variety of things. And um, they were applying for a license for a new television station here. And they had hired me to help with their local community campaign. It's almost like running a political campaign in some respects where you're really trying to get public support for your, for your license. They weren't successful in getting their license, but then they purchased a television station which was called CKVU at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you grew up in Vancouver, you'd know it as like, I think it was called UTV at one point. Um, and yeah, I was, uh, you know, hired by the corporate offices to be a person in Vancouver to help, you know, again, create community awareness and support. And then when they did finalize uh, the CRTC approved the sale and they had control and ownership of CKVU, and it was then branded as City TV. I was part of the team that uh, was part of the relaunch of the brand and building the programming there. And, and yeah, that was really an amazing because it was a company at the time where, um, you know, I'd had some production experience. I'd produced uh, some, you know, very small scale documentaries and I'd work for a documentary company that also did some commercial work. So I had, you know, some experience in production, um, but be- because of my community experience, my production experience, and my communications background, um, you know, this job at City TV was really interesting for me because it was it incorporated public affairs, um, creative, and all kinds of things, and the ability to help shape some programming that was, you know, local and, and for audiences here. And again, there was no social media, right? There was no Facebook. There wasn't um, Twitter. Uh, I always sort of think like, wow, we'd launch those kinds of shows when when there is now social channels existing, it would have been quite a different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it was, again, it was a lot of good, you know, good timing and I guess hard work. Um, and uh I don't know if it was I had a big vision necessarily, but it was like, OK, this is like, again, the opportunity to be at something at the, at the start and the ground level. Like, I, guess, I guess that's what I'd like, <laughs> because that sort of led. It, it seems to be a recurring theme mm-hmm. in, in many roles that I've had. 
Well, yeah, and I mean, that kind of leads me into my next question, which is, you know, your career at, at, at TELUS, which um, you were the uh, director of, um, now, oh, what was your exact title here? Director of Content. And I can mm-hmm. only imagine how content changed over the period of time that you were there, because like I say, you're always kind of like in this, you always seem to be kind of like a head of the next big thing. So you're always, always kind of treading uncharted territory. And I'm curious about, you know, how did you come to, to tell us? And then let's start with that. How did you end up at tell us? Um, well, after, so, you know, I was at Chum for several years and then I actually took a corporate job and moved to Toronto as a director of regulatory and government affairs for Chum Corporate. So I actually went to Toronto for a few years. And during that time, um, Chum Television got sold to CTV and um, things quickly changed. And once CTV had taken over, I didn't stay, uh, but I was in Toronto. And many of my colleagues from Chum you know, uh, went to other places. And one of my, you know, friends and mentors uh, to this day, a woman named Maria Hale, um, was uh, a VP at Chum. And then she had taken a job as a VP at TELUS. And, you know, I was, uh, you know, had left Chum. I was still in Toronto and still sort of talking to lots of people, trying to figure out what was going to be my next move. Would I be, come back to Vancouver? Do I find a job in Toronto? And, um, I met with Maria and she said, look, I'm building a team. TELUS is launching a TV product. It wasn't even called Optic TV at the time. This was Maria's was based in Toronto at the time. And she said, and I actually um, need somebody in Vancouver on my content team because there isn't anybody. Would you move back? And it was, again, great timing. I really, you know, I love Toronto, but Vancouver is my hometown. My family is here and, you know, this is where my roots are. So I came back and um, was part of Maria's team. Now, as many things happen in large companies like uh, TELUS, after I moved back about six months later, Maria left TELUS. So, um, but then I stayed there for eight years. And again, my role uh, really grew and developed there as the product grew and changed and and was had the opportunity to be part of the team that created and launched the Story Hive um, program, which is like so proud of it still and how it continues to develop and and serve creators in BC and Alberta. And and can we talk a little bit? Uh, I want to get to Story Hive in a minute because I I, th- I fully agree with you. I think that's probably one of the most innovative programs to come out of Telus in a long time. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the shift in technology over the time that you were at Telus. I, I, I read somewhere or heard somewhere you talking a little bit about, you know, when we were talking about VOD and the, it was still the DVD era and yeah. how that's now totally changed. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about th- that th- yeah. that growth? Because I. F- I find that that speaks a little bit to where we are now. We were, mm-hmm. we're also in another sort of shifting tidal wave now into some other unknown that we're not fully aware of yeah. yet. Yeah. Well, it was when I, I started there in um, 2008. 2008? Yeah, 2008. And um, they didn't have all the channels yet. So it was, you know, pre-optic TV. It was called Telus TV. And it was sort of in a soft launch mode because they hadn't, because what happens is to to build your channels, you have to go negotiate with um, television broadcasters, you know, to carry their services and then package them up and sell them to consumers. 
So, you know, part of my job was working with the team that was like trying to, okay, what channels are we going to, do we need to be more competitive with, you know, the other cable provider in town? And as well as, you know, curating and building a VOD library. Now, at the time, like now, like, you know, I watched um, Space Jam with some kids the other night, right? Like, on, like it was still in the theaters, but you could, you know, rent it on, you know, on demand for $25 or something. And, you know, at that time, people were still, video stores were still around. I remember, what was the service called in Canada? It wasn't Netflix, but I was still getting DVDs in the mail, and you'd watch them and then you'd send them back and they'd send mm-hmm. them, you'd like put your list together, like the pre-Netflix. And I think Netflix was, you know, again, Netflix wasn't really being talked about as a streaming service, but YouTube was really like yeah. getting bigger and stronger because, you know, sort of 2005, 2006 onward. Um, but, you know, having conversations with, um, you know, studios about their movies and carrying them on our on-demand service and, Ensure, you know, one of the important things that tell us was always the quality that came across, like the technical quality. Um, and everything was in SD and then trying to move to HD and the costs around that. And, and you couldn't at that time, DVDs, you know, the windows were, you know, theatrical release followed by DVD release and VOD would be last. And then maybe even airlines came before VOD, like you could watch a movie on Air Canada before that and um you know because they were just trying to make as much money in each of those phases as possible so you know having conversations it's very funny to think about it now with someone like you know warner brothers on like okay you know what if we did what we'd call day and date if your movie came out on tuesday on dvd why not have it the same day on vod right so it was um you know it's really crazy to think how much has changed pretty quickly Mm -hmm. And now, you know, if you still, if you subscribe to TELUS, your Netflix and Crave is all there as part of the service. Yeah. Um, and let's talk a little bit about StoryHive. Um, it, it is a really fascinating uh, project. Can you talk a little bit about where that idea came from? Yeah. Well, we, at that time, one of my jobs was, um, so when you are a cable company in Canada, there's a certain portion of your revenue that has to go back towards Canadian content and community programming. And uh, all the companies do it slightly differently. And at TELUS, we had a lot of conversations about, well, you know, we're really a tech company. So, you know, why just, I don't know, I think Shaw at the time had like Shaw Cable 4, like Channel 4, if you remember, right? Like the mm-hmm. sort of the the cable channel that, um, the community television channel that kind of ran the same shows um, or had, you know, talk shows and, you know, like whatever, good local programming that mm-hmm. was meant to serve the community. So we're like, what if we looked at that model completely differently? And, um, you know, it started out as a conversation, um, you know, Kickstarter was starting around then. It was almost like we were like, what if it was like a Kickstarter where it was, it started, when Story Hive started, it was like, a, it was a competition of sorts where it was like people could upload their, um, you know, pitch their ideas online and then the public would vote and the top, you know, X number of productions would get funding to go make their short film. So it was like, a very like that was the early days of it right was really thinking because that was you know there was kickstarter there was indiegogo and it was like what if we built a kickstarter indiegogo but we gave the money 
but the idea was that a project would build its audience and fan base before it was made. So at least it had some built-in, um, you know, interest in whatever they were doing. And it, it certainly evolved a ton from that point, and even until, you know, it still continues to in terms of what it what they do, what the team has continued to build and develop there. And I left TELUS now coming up, or yeah, coming up six years and so much has changed and, in you know, the impact the story hive has had. And it was also meant to be like a place for what, at least the idea then was the beginnings of how people can enter the ecosystem of understanding production and get, becoming part of kind of the Canadian funding world. And um, if they had an interest in that, but still telling those local stories so yeah, I haven't talked about that in a while, but that, that those were the early days of Storyhouse. I'm really I, I keep coming back to this because I, I just think it's so fascinating that you do seem to always kind of be thinking outside the box and thinking about what's coming next. And sometimes, you know, it really is uncharted territory. And I'm curious on a personal level, how do you know that the choices that you're making or the decisions that you're making are the right ones when you don't have any milestones that you're working towards. Like there isn't a clear Mm -hmm. line in the sand that says, this is where you need to get to. And you know, you're doing well. Like a lot of the time you're traveling through these waters that are changing daily. How do you navigate that? Well, you know, in some ways I don't spend too much time thinking about it in some sense or worrying about it. I guess I've had the flexibility or the support to, you know, when you're part of a larger organization like TELUS, um, there was the opportunity to, you know, you ha- you, you know I, I wasn't worried about paying the bills, let's just say, right? Like it was, um, you know, they had a financial obligation to do something that was community programming and we were trying to find an innovative way to do it. So, you know, that, that gives you more room to think creatively, right? When you don't have some other barriers like that, right? Or, and, you know, you have the, the technical expertise around you, you know, I always sort of describe it as I feel like I had, I was fortunate at that time that, you know, sort of like a person, you know, starting a startup, but without all the other startup things you have to worry about. (laughs) Right. Um, And, um, you know, I think it's also having confidence that you're serving a need and, and also knowing that it may need to shift and change. Like what like what story I've started as and where it is now, so different. Mm-hmm. But the goals of it in, you know, finding new voices, supporting, you know, storytellers to tell stories that otherwise aren't going to be told um, or aren't getting the opportunities to be, that still holds true. So I think it's also going into it knowing that um, your first try is not going to be likely not good or even, you know, you're not even striving for perfection, but that just being open to knowing that there's going to be shifts. And, um, And then also having, you know, sourcing the expertise to help you get it done. Team effort. Yeah. I, I was I was wondering if you could talk a little bit then about your shift to Creative BC because it seems like you were quite happy and were feeling challenged at Talos. So what prompted that move? Yeah, I wasn't looking for anything. It was again kind of timing of this organization was looking for a new leader, and honestly, I was I wasn't even really on my radar. 
until, you know, a couple of people called me and said, you should apply for this. And I was like, no, that's not, they they would never hire me. That's not my thing. And, you know, I'm doing all this stuff with StoryHive right now. And then, and then, you know, I thought about it and I talked to some people I'm close to, and I was like, well, why not? What harm is there in applying for a job? Right. And then, you know, sometimes what happens is you start going through the motions and the interview process, and then you kind of become a little more attached to the idea of it. (laughs) Uh, But even still, because I was, um, you know, in a place where I, you know, had a lot of uh, job satisfaction, I wasn't, um, you know, again, it gave me a different sense of how I approached maybe the interview process even. I don't know. But then, um, yeah, I got the job was offered and I just was like, there was a lot of challenges that I knew would come with it. And then some I didn't even know would come. And I, I took the job. And, you know, once I told my, um, you know, my boss at Telus and my colleagues there, they were, you know, totally supportive and very, you know, like, this is so great for me, it makes a lot of sense in terms of what to do next and the scale of things. And and I also, you know, knew that the team that I'd started to build at TELUS were, you know, things were in great hands there and they continued to build things, you know, for many years after. So, so what, what, what was it for you about when you started to actually start looking at the, the, the role at, at Creative BC? What was it about that position that, uh, the position that appealed to you the most? Well, I guess there was aspects of, you know, when you think about a job where, all your experiences kind of come together. Mm-hmm. You know, this organization was a funder. It, you know, part of my role at TELUS was we also worked a lot on music, um, you know, and I'd worked with the studios and producers in a different capacity. Um, I had government relations experience that were certainly part of this job. And um, I guess the opportunity to make a, you know, support a bigger impact for people, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was, you know, it was, it's, it was several things. It wasn't just one thing. What, uh, I mean, Creative BC covers so much and the ecosystem is so large. I'm curious for you personally, what is the biggest challenge uh, of, of the position and of, of the role of Creative BC within the industry? Well, you know, I think the last year and a half coming on two years, it's been challenging for everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I've never managed through a pandemic before. Um, and uh, not to mention all the other things happening around the globe that feels like all of this is happening at the same time. And um, gosh, you know, there's so many ongoing, um, you know, sometimes I feel like when you say challenges, they sound like it's, they're negative things. I think it's just continuing to learn and then unlearn or rather unlearn and then learn, let's say, <laughs> because they're different things. And, you know, in, again, in the last, you know, two years, there's been a global racial reckoning. There's a different discourse and dialogue around truth and reconciliation and the role we all play in this Um and, um, you know, what do our organizations look like? What are the structures and the systems we're all part of? So I really think that that has been both overwhelming this past year, but also I think for the first time, I actually feel like the, the dial is moving in a different way. So, a con- you know, a lot of conversations that certainly I've been having for many years with many friends and colleagues 
it was not just a few of us having those conversations anymore or as a, you know, a side conversation. It's integrated. It's becoming more and more integrated across all business lines. But, you know, also when I started, you know, that aside, like coming, you know, again, just five, six years ago, Creative BC was still a newly formed organization. So all of these elements of responsibility for the organization had just come together. And there was still a lot of um, people weren't sure what is the role of this organization? Who, what, what are they doing? What are they responsible for? Why do they need to exist? So there was a lot of work to be done, both from um, internally and looking at how do we shape our team here? What, uh, what kind of resources do we need? What are we missing to um, becoming that sort of trusted organization with our stakeholders, whether they're, you know, government, other organizations, grant recipients, and the relevance of that. And again, because of the pandemic now, there's, you know, there's never been more demand for our programs um, because people need them. And, you know, we've also been fortunate that over the years, we've had increased financial support from the government. And that makes a big difference from the province as well as, um, you know, other funding sources. And again, those are really important. So when there's sort of things that I worry about or think about a lot is the, you know, ensuring that we are resourced to be able to deliver on our, on our commitments mm-hmm. and, you know, what people are asking us to do for them out there. And I mean, the last, like you mentioned, last year and a half has been such a change for everybody. And mm-hmm. I can only assume that it's continuing to evolve at, at, at Creative BC as to what the response is like. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly pivots in our programs, right, to be able to, uh, when you think about, you know, events, like mm-hmm. we fund a lot of events, or people traveling to markets to, you know, sell their film, their video game, whatever it is, obviously, that wasn't happening. So there was a lot of pivoting of our programs themselves and what they supported. Our team has been, for the most part, we've been working remotely, and that's worked well. And now it's, you know, really looking at, okay, what's happening in public health? What does return to the office look like for most people? You know, all of these things that we're continuing to work through. But back in March 2020, when we all, you know, thought we were going home for two weeks, Mm -hmm. um, we were all going through so many emotions. And I think it was sort of end of March, early April, And, you know, talking to my leadership team here, I'm like, you know, we are the people who we still have jobs. And in fact, we're delivering programs or we'll have to, our fiscal year starts April 1st. So we're like, well, we have the opportunity to, you know, work with our colleagues in government to start to shape programs that can maybe support people through these uncertain times and, you know, adjust some of our criteria for what these programs are. But at the same time, we as individuals are all going through our own emotions around what is a global pandemic and, you know, am I going to get COVID? Um, We actually brought in a, um, I'm going to call her a business therapist um, (laughs) to work with us as a team on when you are, because we're also, you know, especially the teams who are on the front lines dealing with people who that one grant is going to make a big difference for them in what they're doing and in their lives and, you know, helping us with tools and techniques on, you know, how to continue to operate with empathy and um, not detached, but also not taking on everybody's problems, everybody's challenges. 
and but at the same time taking care of yourself. So we did spend some time investing and supporting our team and in some of that and, you know, on the mental health side, because, um, you know, again, nobody had been through this before. And even having conversations on like, how do you engage on Zoom? Remember, like it wasn't part of our daily lives. Like maybe you did it once in a while. So that was, you know, a lot of what we were doing at that sort of that, I guess, the first quarter of COVID last year. I actually think that that's really interesting. And I wanted to touch on that because I can't help but think that if it was a man leading the organization, it would probably have been more reluctant to think about the personal well-being of your employees and the people that you work with. It seems to me like that's kind of like more of a female instinct. And that could be, I'm, I am generalizing and I realize mm-hmm. that, but I can't help but think that the organization will run differently when it's led by a woman than when it's led by a man. And in a time of such uncertainty, the fact that one of your first thoughts was to think about the well-being of your people is such a forward thinking um, thought. Like, did, was there any pushback that this was something that needed to be done? Uh, well, you know, it was certainly like conversations with my leadership team that we kind of, where it all came together. Well, this, this person that we worked with is uh, someone who had done some other work with us previously. And it was in my conversations with her sort of navigating through this that I was like, hey, maybe this is something, you, you know, you should be doing for organizations. It's giving them some coaching on how we're all, go, you know, going through this. And um, then, you know, I discussed it with my senior management team and, and you know, everybody agreed that wasn't like a huge cost to us or anything to do something like that. So why wouldn't we do it? And no, there wasn't really any pushback and everybody... I would say everybody's COVID journey is unique (laughs) and it continues to be. (laughs) And not to mention, look, we've lived through wildfires and heat domes and what's happening everywhere in the world on a daily basis. It's, it's piling up for people. It's a lot piling up and not to mention like anything personal that might be going on. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, continuing to remind ourselves to have compassion and for ourselves and empathy and you know sometimes you know I certainly forget that because you're just trying to get stuff done right like you're just trying to um, move things quickly in in some cases and um, you know taking a moment to remind ourselves that we're still in it we're still in this how has your management and leadership uh, style changed if at all during the pandemic, have you seen shifts? You think you'd have to ask my team that? (laughs) (laughs) They may have, I don't know. Um, You know, certainly interacting obviously more with people on a screen. Uh, I'm in the office a fair bit and my leadership team, I've got four people and they usually are each in at least once or twice a week. So we try to do our one-on-ones in person. And I think that's still important. Um, And we've been getting together, you know, all the COVID protocols, you know, once a month or once every six to eight weeks to do just a bigger check-in and strategic-ish planning sessions on, okay, what does the next month or two look like? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's a little bit different in terms of the time we're spending really trying to think through things together again, because so much is out of our control, right? Like Mm -hmm. we don't control when vaccines are ready and 
and all those kinds of things. So I think part of it is, I guess part of the learning from a leadership perspective this year is, you know, learning what you have no control over and just getting over it. Because <laughs> Moving on to the next thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause you can just really, I, I don't think I'd be unique and like, you're just sort of like, okay, if this happens, we do this. And it's like, well, let's just make a plan and then, We'll shift it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And how do you deal with, I mean, I know one of the things that a lot of people struggle with, myself included, is just like meeting fatigue. It mm-hmm. seems like we're in meetings way more than we used to be when we were mm-hmm. meeting in person. How do you deal with, you know, just the getting tired of certain aspects of the job that, you know, maybe weren't a big issue before, but now that you have to, like, you you kind of have to find your way through it. And I'm curious what your methods are for kind of getting through some, oh. maybe some of the rough patches of the day. Do you yeah. go for a walk? Do you unplug? Yeah, like, how yeah. do you? Yeah. I mean, I always have a lot of, have had a lot of meetings. They just weren't on a screen all the time. Mm-hmm. So for me, my eyes really get tired these days uh, being on a screen. And I have to say, I took two weeks off in July. And the biggest thing, I, it's not like I wasn't, obviously, I was like on my phone or, you know, watching things on a screen, but I wasn't doing interactions on screen. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was the rest I needed was the interaction on screens. Um, I think it's been amazing because I've had meetings with people in Australia and the UK and Hong Kong, you know, US in Toronto on a regular basis now where we used to wait to have those conversations till we met in person or something or at a festival or event. And I think that's been quite amazing is the, is that um, people are more willing to, Um, make the time because they're not traveling somewhere for three days to have an hour long conversation or meeting with you. But you have to, um, depending on the week, I try to build in like, if I'm at the office, our office is near the Olympic village, I try to build in a seawall walk or something um, just to, you know, get some fresh air, because I think that's the, that's the balance in trying to find, you know, time what are you doing when you're away from a screen are you just going to look at another screen and watch something or um you know actually trying to do something nourishing for yourselves and i think that you know again i think we've been you know fortunate this summer that you know we live here and you know it was like this crazy summer like i felt like we were living in california or something for a bit there (laughs) that um you could be outside a lot and i moved during the pandemic. So that's, that was my pandemic puppy. I like to tell, say to people, (laughs) bought a new home. So that's, you know, come, came with something again to focus on that wasn't just about work. Mm -hmm. Finding your own personal space and time to unwind. Exactly. But um, you, you, you did mention though, um, uh, the meetings and, and how people are more uh, willing to have conversations mm-hmm. that before would have waited for in person. Do you think that that's something that's now here to stay now that we're kind of more used to this more immediate uh, discussion? I, I, I think so. I think there's a lot of great things, right? Like that, the efficiency, the ability to collaborate over borders. Um, but, you know, I was saying this recently because now, you know, going into what I'll say, you know, which is September for us is the start of festival season. Like, you know, usually, I'd be 
after Labor Day going to TIFF. Mm-hmm. And which I've been going for many, many years and obviously didn't go the last year, won't be going this year. And um, part of it is what happens at those in-person events, whether they're local or international or wherever they are, is the informal relationships you build that take years sometimes before you even may come together for a project or a business conversation that is, I think, something that I hope returns in some way in person because it's great. You can have um, meeting sessions, you know, for festivals that are uh, happening and being organized over Zoom and, and or whatever platform. And it's great because you, you're getting access to people. But then really it's not the like, you know, I'm walking down the street in you know, on Queen Street, and I run to someone, I'm like, hey, oh, yeah, I saw you at that thing last night, and tell me again what you're doing, and blah, blah, like the that part of it, right, in life in general, right? mm-hmm. that um, I think is, is really important, because that's certainly how I've seen, now, again, that's how business used to get done, but so maybe that will shift, you know, in the in this new, new way we're doing business, but, you know, I, I do think that in-person interaction I hope is not gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting is this idea of, and I fully agree. I think that we need to have that human interaction to build those relationships. They're much harder to do online. Um, and and I, I, th- I think that leads me to something that I, I've heard you mention before that I think is really interesting. And this is this idea of relationships and mentorships and your not, I don't want to say concept because that sounds so heady, but your idea of mentorship aligns so much more to what I think of mentorship. And it, it's not something that I've really heard um, other people talk about in this way, which is that mentorship is more than just about the one-on-one and this formal concept of a mentorship where you have someone that you, like Maria, that, you know, mm-hmm. was your mentor, but the mentorship also comes in other shapes and forms and ways and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that I was listening to something where you were talking about how you know even a job could be a mentorship you know your boss can be your mentor a co-worker can be a mentor a thing could be a mentor can you talk a little bit about how this uh, concept of mentorship came to be for you yeah and maybe I don't I didn't always call it mentorship right mm-hmm. like it, it's just this um I don't know if I go back to that building relationships and trust and um you know it's funny like i went to maria's wedding in los angeles in february 2020 like it was one of the last trips i took before the lockdown (laughs) and that's a relationship friendship over decades Mm -hmm. and you know that's an exception maybe but you know most of my former bosses i have kept in touch with in some form. Um, maybe not as regularly, obviously, as, as some others, but I, I think that it is, I don't know, about knowledge sharing, watching and learning from people. Um, I think sometimes it's understanding your own um, barriers towards things. It's ongoing, like whether it's personal or professional. Like there is no, I figured it out. Here's the formula. Hmm. Um, I think it's just ongoing and yeah, continue listening to people. I wanted to touch a little bit about on, um, you know, youth 
and you've talked quite a bit about, you know, inspiring um, young people and seeing how things have shifted for them than they were for you. And I'm curious if you had a, a couple of pieces of advice or one piece of advice that you could have given yourself when you were young, knowing what you know now, what would that piece of advice be? I guess don't spend so much time worrying about what you don't even know is coming. <laughs> And, you know, that's all very personality driven in some ways. And that doesn't mean like just focus on today and don't think about tomorrow. That's not what I'm saying. I think it's more like the we have a lot of tools now that can help us manage our, you know, anxieties and um, unease in life, whatever that looks like for you as an individual. And I think that that can take up a lot of time and energy and maybe takes away from other things. And, you know, again, for, for a person. So I think it's, um, again, I would encourage people to, there's a lot of great tools and places to have conversations and connect with people that didn't really exist in the same way. You know, when I was starting my career 20, 25 years ago, uh, but you know, some of my best friends today are people I met at that job at that PR firm. So, you know, we kind of went on a career, personal journeys together and um, don't discount those relationships either. You don't know who's going to be around and, and what, what uh, I don't know, I'm kind of rambling a bit, but, you know, I'm just sort of thinking it's, you know, one of my best friends is someone I met at that PR job. And, uh, you know, we're the same age and today's his birthday. So, you know, we're hanging out later but it's like, sometimes we talk about that, wow, we've known each other for 25 years mm-hmm. and we were like 25 when we met. So <laughs> that is kind of nuts when you think about it. We are old. <laughs> <laughs> Older and wiser. Older and wiser. Yeah. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits, as well as additional production support by Michael Edland. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.